Hello, beautiful light-filled souls. My name is Trisha Barker, and I'm excited to let you know that the second annual online near-death experience summit is coming up this June 23rd with speakers, Dr. Raymond Moody, Lisa Smart, Dr. Jeffrey Long, Dr. Eben Alexander, Karen Newell, Nancy Rines, Howard Storm, Paul Perry, David Ditchfield, Leslie Lupo, Kimberly Clark Sharp, Dr. Tony Chicoria, John Burke, Jose Hernandez, and me, your host. There are plenty of videos to check out ahead of time, but please look at this link and we'd love to have you join. You can get your questions answered by the speakers at this event. And thank you. Thank you so much for your support of my memoir, Angels in the OR, which launched last month. It is such a pleasure to connect with readers, and many people have enjoyed the Audible. So if you don't have an Audible subscription, you can have three, 30 days um, for free and get my book that way. But I would love to hear from you, and I hope you enjoyed this recording. You can check out these interviews on my YouTube channel. I'm converting many of them over to podcast, but enjoy. Hello, beautiful Lightfield souls. This is Trisha Barker, and I'm here with Jeff O'Driscoll and his book, um, Not Yet, Near Life Experiences and Lesson Learned, is a wonderful book. And I recently finished reading it, so I have a lot of questions for the author and for Jeff about his experiences, and I might as well just jump right in. But before I do, I do want to remind everyone that um, Jeff Olson and Jeff O'Driscoll will be talking at a summit later this month that I'm hosting, and I'm really excited about that, so check out the link below. And let's go ahead and begin. So I was totally drawn into your book from really the forward when you wrote, uh, or the preface, where you wrote something about um, focusing on Jeff's medical condition instead of his NDE is like focusing on a travel brochure while flying at low altitude through the Grand Canyon, that his physical recovery is only a small portion of his story. Like, thank you so much for writing that and saying that because you can't imagine how many doctors have just looked at me and thought, oh, how tragic that at 22, you broke your back and had this spinal injury. And I'm like, no, death was the greatest gift of my life. And, you know, they look at me like I'm insane. And, you know, they just see me as this tragedy in a sense, instead of, um, you know, the miraculous story that moving beyond the veil can give us. So first, I'd just like to thank you for that. And I have a question. So as a early physician, did you all or did you feel like you immediately began to see spirits in the ER? I think that my experiences with uh, people that most don't see began early in my childhood, actually, when my older brother died in a farm accident. <clears throat> I think that's what sensitized me to it. And uh, it happened somewhat through my educational career and then as an emergency physician, as it continued and became more frequent, I think, because of the nature of emergency medicine work and the, and the frequency with which you're dealing with people that are passing in and out of this life. Yeah, and one of the things that I also found beautiful in the book is that you talk about sensing the beauty of a soul coming in and then the soul's leaving and how that's different. And after my near-death experience, I remember walking to see a friend who was having a baby and I saw these pictures of babies and their eyes were just lit up. And I was so in touch with that joy that they felt coming in. So 
Could you describe, do you mind describing a little bit more than you did in the book about that experience of the new life coming in? Well, we talk a lot about near-death experiences, but it's been my experience that people have at least as spiritually ex uh, uh, transformative experiences in conjunction with birth at times. And I think of it in, a, in an almost literal physical way in that there's this veil between our life and another life. And when people draw back that veil, either at the time of birth to come into this life or at the time of death as they're leaving, I kind of imagine myself, if I'm close to that part of the veil when it opens up, that uh, some of that glory and light splashes through and gets onto me. And sometimes, sometimes if the veil's held open long enough, you can see in there. And sometimes you see someone you recognize uh, or you have some other spiritually transformative experience just by being spiritually in the proximity of that opening of the veil, whether it's somebody coming or going. That's beautiful, beautiful. And I noticed that there were more nurses that you connected with who had the spiritual seeing or knowing. Have you come across other doctors who talk as openly as you do, like in your field, or did you only meet them at conferences? Um, <clears throat> I don't know whether I had as many that were had as frequent or as uh, in-depth experiences as I, as I did, but several of them that had experiences. In fact, you'll notice the small quote on the back side, on the back cover of the book. Uh, that comes from an emergency room physician about uh, hope and the more complete quotes inside, but that's from a, an emergency physician. I never really encountered any of my colleagues that were uh, resistant to the idea. Some spoke about it, some didn't, but I didn't get any hostility from my medical colleagues. That's one. Um, by nature of being a nurse, often uh, there's more female nurses than male nurses, I think. And it's been my experience sometimes that females are simply more sensitive to such things. And I wondered sometimes if that's why the nurses I interacted with, many of them female, had more experiences than my male counterparts. Interesting. Yeah, I, I wonder about these things as well. I think that at least it's more socially acceptable for women to talk about these things, to be deeply empathetic. And that is one of the themes that runs through your book that I was touched by is empathy. And I think it's one thing, you know, to pick up on spirits and, you know, to have this deep questioning mind for religion and philosophy. But I think the real work, the real spiritual work of this world is helping other people. And, and you talk about this a lot in, in the book, and it, it really moved me. But would you mind describing a little bit more about what you think about when you think about empathy and the lessons that you've learned? I like that term you use, uh, spiritual work, uh, because frequently it is work. And it's been my experience that more than not, we interact with spirits in the same way we interact with mortals. And often, if it, often when they come to us, they want something. They want us to do something for them. And yet they're so respectful, in my opinion, and in my experience of, of our human agency, that sometimes they won't ask you to do something unless you offer, unless you ask them, what would you like me to do? And then sometimes they'll give you a task. And what we sometimes fail to remember is that spirits, very much like mortals, when we help them, they want to help us. And sometimes they do things for us that we couldn't do for ourselves as we do things for them that they find difficult to do for themselves as well. 
I've been sent by spirits with a message for a loved one. And uh, when I've asked them why they didn't just go to the loved one themselves, they'll tell me, oh, they wouldn't receive it from me. I need somebody to help me or they're too busy. And uh, so sometimes I think just being willing to do something uh, puts us in a position where we can have an experience because we're willing and receptive. I completely agree. In fact, that was like my whole mission as a teacher. I just was like, okay, I'm willing. If angels want to work through me, if ancestors want to work through me to help a student, then let's just see, you know, like what will happen. And I think you're exactly right about that willingness, but also the pain that we witness in this world. I realized, you know, as an ER doctor that you saw homeless people and people losing loved ones and you saw so much pain. And I think as a teacher, I've seen a lot of pain in this world. And it's it's a beautiful experience in some way to get out of ourselves and to be in that flow of the divine in other people's lives. And and your stories of this are, are wonderful. I'm sure there's so many stories that you didn't put in the book. <laughs> so how did you decide what stories to put in and what stories to leave out? There are a lot of stories that are not in the book. Uh, when I started writing it, uh, as I explain in the book, I went for about 20 years without writing anything, except in my journal, basically. And when I finally felt that it was okay for me to talk about it, and I finally started to feel like I could share, I started with the experience that I shared with my friend Jeff Olson, who was nearly killed in a car accident uh, 20 years ago, 21 years now. His wife and his young son were killed, and he nearly lost his own life. And it many of these experiences in the book are simply the first year of my friendship with Jeff Olson. And just the chronology of reading that year of my journal is where many of these experiences come from. I picked and picked a few that were outside of that year, uh, but uh, the way I picked these was simply a matter of looking at that first year of our friendship and some of the things that we shared together. And I do want to get to Jeff's story since that's a big part of this book. Is that why you decided to come forward completely um, and start talking about this? Or did you think that it was also beneficial to other people who work in hospitals? And did you have other reasons for coming forward with your knowledge? Well, when I started the book, I didn't really have any other reasons. As I, as I, as I got into it a little bit further, it kind of occurred to me that many of the people I've met and talked with want to have a spiritually transformative experience. They want to have something akin to a near-death experience, but most of them would prefer not to die to get it. And uh, I realized as I was writing some of my own experiences that I'd learned some lessons along the way. You know, things about being willing and listening and asking when you have a spiritual experience, asking who are you and what, what do you want me to do? These were things that were very helpful helpful for me. And so I didn't start the book as a how-to book, but I realized partway through it, you know, I'm not telling you how to have an experience, but here's what I have, here's what I experienced, and here's what I learned. And if that helps you, then I'm pleased to share it with you. And so when I wrote this book, I was getting ready to go speak at my first uh, uh, public uh, forum, if you will. It was in Salem, Massachusetts, and I was actually speaking with Jeff Olson. And in the airport, I encountered a young couple who sat down next to me, and we started to chat, and we got to that usual spot where they ask you where you're going and what you're doing. And when they found out where I was going and what I was talking about, the young woman immediately lit up and told me about her grandfather that had recently passed and how he'd visited her a couple of times. And I asked her, 
uh, did you ever ask him what he wants you to do? Why he's coming to you? And she, her face just lit up. She just, she resonated somehow with that. And we had a nice chat. She took a copy of my book, got on her plane, and I got my plane. And somewhere between uh, Salt Lake City and Salem, Massachusetts, in the air, that spirit that I've come to trust that speaks to one's heart said to me, you'll help more people with this book than you helped as an emergency physician in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. So it kind of changed my perspective about how we help people and what we do. And maybe there's more purpose in it than I initially realized. Oh, you know, there was healing in this book for me, believe it or not. Um, and that healing came from I didn't get that uh, type of relationship with my surgeon. She was very focused on my physical healing. And uh, there was so much I could have verified with her because I saw her operating on me. You know, I saw the operating room. There were so many things that we could have talked about. And then we could have, yeah, I mean, I would have loved her friendship, in other words, but I was kind of shut down in, in the ER. And I was so ready to talk about my experience. And just the fact that you did that for Jeff, I mean, it's so heartwarming and so validating. I mean, it must have validated him on so many levels to have you, and we'll get into his story now, this is a good transition, you know, where you can tell those who are not familiar with your book, and maybe not even Jeff's story, more about that moment. But the fact that you saw his wife in the ER is just mind-blowing. And I know that you've, um, you have a lot more to say about that, but would you mind just kind of jumping in and talking more about that friendship and and that moment, that first moment when you saw his wife and the, um, his deceased wife in the ER, Tamara? Yes, it happened in March. Uh, and uh, it was uh, 21 years ago now. Uh, a nurse who had shared some spiritual experiences with me and whom I'd reluctantly shared a few th experiences with uh, came to me during one of my shifts late in the evening and said, you have to come to the trauma room. And I asked her why, what, what, was the, what was the issue? I knew a trauma was coming. I knew that there had been alerted and that the trauma team was already there. There was another emergency physician in the department and, and, and they were in the trauma room. So there was no need for me to be there. But she came to me and said, you have to come. And I said, why? And she said, he, she's there. I said, who? And she said, his wife, she's there. And when she said that, then I realized what she was telling me. And I went to the trauma room with her. And on the far side of the trauma room, I saw an unconscious, motionless figure surrounded by a bunch of medical personnel doing their usual tasks. And above him and the rest of the people, I saw uh, what I later learned was his deceased wife standing above him, watching over his care, and soon communicating her great uh, appreciation for everything that everybody was doing for her. Like, you know, I saw angels during my near-death experience. Did she communicate telepathically? I think I remember reading that you wrote that, that her communications were just like waves of light or telepathy. Is that how you, or did you just get a general sense of well, her? I'm not quite sure how to describe it. Uh, you know that... When these spirits communicate, they communicate volumes. They communicate yeah. a lifetime of information in an instant. And they may or may not move their lips, and they may or may not use words. It's, you walk in, and you, it's not that you see them with your mortal eyes as much as you experience them with all of your senses instantaneously. And I knew her, and I knew her heart, and I knew 
everything that she was there to communicate and the genuineness of it. I knew that her husband, Jeff, would live. I knew that there was purpose in his future life. And uh, you experience this all in a way that's uh, ineffable to people that haven't had the experience. I know, and that's, I'm glad that you preface that in your book about wanting other people to have these types of experiences because I have friends who have lost loved ones and they say, I was so close to my mom. Why doesn't she come to me in a dream? Or I was so close to my dad. Why isn't he visiting me? And I'm like, I don't know, you know, why it's not happening for you, but don't give up, you know, keep right. petitioning, keep hoping, keep meditating right. and believing, you know, that you will have that connection. Do you offer advice to people who ask you that? Well, sometimes I think it's our closeness that uh, inhibits the communication. Uh, sometimes I've had much more profound experiences with total strangers, like Tamara, Jeff Olson's deceased wife. Um, I never met Jeff or his wife prior to that night. And it was only after that that we became friends. Um, and sometimes I have experiences with loved ones or people I know, but sometimes it's people that I've never met or known at all. And I think that when we're too close to someone or something, it inhibits our communication. In fact, you talked about how focused your physician was. And it's been my experience, when I'm really focused on taking care of a patient, when I'm responsible for the whole team and giving the orders, uh, I don't often have spiritual experiences because I'm so consumed with the things of this world. It's when I walk into a room and some other doctor's in charge and I have no responsibility, I can kind of stop and breathe and take it in and then things open up and I have an experience when I'm not responsible for anything temporal. And I think it's that way sometimes with loved ones and relatives. I would think one of the reasons people struggle to have, they don't have spiritual experiences at the death, death of a loved one is because they're consumed with grief. And grief is such a powerful, earthly emotion, it crowds out the spiritual. And the same at birth. People are so elated and so excited about this new human being that's arrived in their world that they're, they don't have spiritual experiences because they're so full of earthly, emotional uh, experiences at that moment. So in your, I'm going to come back to Jeff's story. In your book, you talk about visiting him and some of his recovery and the growing friendship. Uh, what was one of the moments of where you felt like, okay, this is just a profound healing that we're able to share this with one another? Um, you know, because it had to happen, you know, when you, you talk about seeing Tamara. It didn't happen the night we met. Uh, we finished up in the trauma room. He went off to the OR. I went out and finished the uh, the tasks I was doing to complete my shift and I went home and never thought I'd see or hear from him again. Uh, people think that that's strange for me to say, but I'd had other experiences like that. So it wasn't that terribly unusual for me. I went home and I wrote in my journal. Uh, I, when I write in my journal, frequently it's at night and I'm tired and I want to finish up what I'm doing and go to bed. And I think I wrote of his of that event that it was an interesting experience that was about the extent of what I wrote um, but about a month later the same nurse came to me and said we got to go see Jeff uh, meaning Jeff Olson and I said no we don't <laughs> if you want to go see him you go see him but I don't have to do anything and I'm not inclined to go share my spiritual experiences with some total stranger but she was persistent and she drugged me up to his hospital room 
And uh, as they spoke, uh, they both became emotional because I didn't know it at that time until then that Jeff had also had an out-of-body experience. He had two or three near-death experiences, one at the scene of the accident and another one in the hospital, a couple more in the hospital. And I didn't know that until then. And I had this profound growing impression during this first visit that really the only reason for me to be there was to begin the friendship that we'd have to the present day. And that uh, we would uh, share things with each other and help each other, which we did. And it was because of this persistent nurse that I ever even went back and, and talked with him for the first time. And, and then we uh, got together for lunch on a regular basis and we'd talk about the, his near-death experiences and the conflict he felt between what he'd experienced and what he'd been taught all his life. And uh, we worked through the resolution of those things uh, to help each other. And that's so important because near-death experiencers do need to process all of this with someone and that he was able to do that with you is amazing. And I, I love his story. I've interviewed Jeff and read his books and that out-of-body experience where he talks about all the pain dissolving and you mentioned it in your book too but you know that presence of god where you're just so completely loved and so completely at home in that place is what i think so many of us long to bring to earth and in small ways or large ways like that's kind of what we see as our calling you know how do we remind people that yeah, the pain is what we walk through and there's grief and there's trauma and there's all kind of things that are, are difficult to live through. But God is so much more than that. God is this incredible peace and love and joy. Did you, um, did you find inspiration from Jeff's story when he told you about that moment with God or is that kind of how you knew God? Did it change your ideas of God? It didn't. And as a matter of fact, the way that I ended up helping Jeff, I think, is the fact that I'd already been where he was, maybe not the same circumstances, but the same feelings and experiences. And for example, I wouldn't share this if he hadn't already published it and spoken of it publicly, but during one of his experiences, he was given the opportunity to hold his 17-month-old son who had died in the automobile accident. And in the midst of that, he felt himself embraced by this being of glory and light and, and omniscience, uh, uh, God, if you will, from behind, he was embraced. And at that moment, he not only felt the divinity that was embracing him, but he felt that he himself was divine. And that was the message that was communicated to him, that he was divine. And that was a struggle for him. It, it, it seemed almost blasphemous in, in a way. Well, one, one day when we went to lunch, um, I felt impressed to ask him a question, and I'm not sure why or how I came to that, but we sat down to eat, and I asked him, when did you become a god? And he just looked at me, and I found out later that his family accused him of having an imaginary friend who asked him the right questions at the right times because he'd go home and talk about it, you know, to his brother. He was staying with his brother for a while because he was too, he wasn't healed enough to be in his own home. And uh, I don't know why I was impressed to ask that question that day, but we talked about it uh, in a, from a lot of different uh, faith traditions, in particularly Christianity, where Christ is talking to the people that wanted to stone him for claiming to be a son of God. And his response to them was, you're all gods. 
and he quoted ancient scripture that they all accepted as truth, uh, where they're asked the question, is it not written in your law? I have said you're gods. And so in that context, uh, it, sound, it seemed perfectly legitimate for Jeff to have an embrace by divinity and at the same time feel divine himself. And when we put things into context, then it was easier for him to accept. He couldn't change his experience. He'd had the experience, but we were able to change the context in which the experience took place enough so that it fit with what he had believed all his life when he understood it. Yeah. So what do you say to people? And you know, the YouTube comments can get kind of crazy, but people who they'll say two different things. One person might say, I feel nothing like God. I could never be, you know, consider myself a part of God. You know, I'm a sinner, you know, all these things and, and the list, all the ways that they feel their own darkness and disconnection from God. And then other people will point out, you know, serial killers and, you know, people who are so deranged and say, how can they be a part of God? What, what is your thought process about those types of questions that people ask? More cerebral, but, you know. Well, we're supposed to feel that we're distant from God. That's part of the reason we're on the earth. That's part of the reason we're in mortality, is to have some distance and some separation and to learn something about what it feels like. Um, but that doesn't make us less divine of who we are before we came or who we'll be in the future. And, and that that experience was kind of cemented for me in the book when I talked about uh, the homeless man that came in and I washed his feet. The homeless people have a struggle with their feet because they're in, they, they're in shoes and dirty socks for long days, sometimes days at a time. And they don't have a place to go to, to wash their feet, to put on clean, dry socks. And they're walking around in wet, uh, cold conditions. And sometimes their feet are in bad shape. And I sat down with this homeless man, and I don't think we even exchanged a word for most of the time I was in the room, but I sat down and filled a basin with warm water and put some soap on a wash rag, and I took off his shoes and socks and I washed his feet. It's one of the most profound spiritual experiences I've ever had. And in the midst of it, I saw who he was. I saw his divine being, his divine nature, and I don't think it would be exaggerating to say that I saw God in that soul. And so when people tell me that they, people were not divine, I just have to say that I have personal experience to know otherwise. People are divine. Yeah, and that's somewhat what I was shown too, that all of the darkness or what people would call sin or, or pain or self-conflict is like a shadow, you know, that God's light just washes that away and that I knew my soul to be the same as God, you know, like I was journeying toward that. I was light. I was love. That's the truth. And what we have to work through while we're here is differentiating, you know, like, okay, this is the light. This is the truth. And it's all, it always comes back to love and knowing ourselves as, as that love of God. Um, beautifully said, there's, there's a moment. And it, it's hard to keep that perspective though. As yeah. I say in one spot in the book, uh, even knowing what I know, the hardest place to see God is in the mirror. Um, we can see God in other people sometimes, but it's hard to see it in ourselves. It's hard to accept. Yeah, and I guess how I accept it better is I look at fear or pain or you know bad choices, and I try to see them as a wind that just kind of kind of let them go and blow out of me. And I keep reminding myself that you know I am in the flow of God and and that love and 
I think that's one way to do it. But yeah, there was, you know, my near death experience occurred a lot many years ago, over 20 years ago as well. So I've walked through a lot in life and there are moments when it's a lot harder to remember that and moments when it's a lot easier to remember it. But as a practice, I think meditation and prayer, talking with other people who are spiritual definitely helps. There's so many different directions I could go when I ask you questions because that one thought kind of spirals into different directions. I think I'll start with forgiveness um, because you have a chapter on that, but if we are all divine, you know, at our core and our essence, then forgiveness is a big part of that. Um, do you want to address anything about that chapter and how? No, I never, <clears throat> I never thought of it quite this way until I was actually writing this book. Um, I, I've thought about repentance and forgiveness for a lot of years, but until I wrote this book, I'd never thought of it in quite this way. Repentance is a very selfish thing in some ways. It's like, how can I make myself better so that I'm uh, cleaner, uh, better? Uh, in some ways, uh, it, it can lead to self-righteousness if you're not careful. But forgiveness, in a way, is totally unselfish. You can choose to forgive whether somebody repents or not. You can choose to forgive them whether they ever make any attempt whatsoever to uh, make things right with you. And I think forgiveness is very underemphasized and repentance is very overemphasized out of proportion to what it should be at times. And I come, I've studied a lot of different uh, religious traditions or faith traditions. I've, I've read the Bhagavad Gita, the sacred text of the Hindus. I've studied the Quran from cover to cover. I, I learned Hebrew so I could study the Torah better. And I'm very familiar with the Judeo-Christian tradition as well. And I think it's interesting that in the Lord's Prayer, if we're using that as an example of how to pray, he doesn't mention repentance at all. He mentions forgiveness. And I thought that was a very interesting uh, insight to gain in the process of writing this book. I lean even more now toward forgiving other people and worry less and less about repenting of my own shortcomings. Because if I'm out there doing good and forgiving others, those other things will take care of themselves. Very interesting. I know that um, forgiveness is something that people struggle with who've suffered a lot. You know, it's... Um, I've watched people struggle through the act of forgiving others. It's very easy from this faraway perspective. You know, if you look at younger people, or if you're a teacher and you look at students and you see them as learning, you know, they're on this path towards growth, then it's so easy to forgive. It's like, well, they would have done better if they knew how to do better. And that type of forgiveness can be given easily. But I think maybe what life has taught me or some wisdom has taught me is that all of life is a school and so that people still need to be granted that kind of forgiveness that they would do better if they knew how to do better in that situation at that time and the quicker we can get to that the freer we are inside you know that it seems that holding on to the pain of others hurts us have you found that or seen that in people oh absolutely yes the people that are freest i think are not the ones that are laboring to forgive it's the ones that have come to the realization that there isn't anything to forgive. I don't need to forgive them because they, they haven't done anything that obligates me to forgive. But 
we tend to label things as good and bad. And I'm not sure that we always pick the right labels. In fact, I'm pretty certain that we don't pick the right labels many times. What we experience and what we think is good and bad and what we take from it and learn from it is often very tainted by our mortal perspective. And uh, Jeff Olson told me once about one of his out-of-body experiences where he was in another sphere and he was feeling bad about the things he did that he thought were wrong. And he came to this understanding. His, his messenger, his tutor at the time, explained that we don't see things as right and wrong here. They're all experiences and it's just a question of what did you learn? How did you become better from it? It wasn't whether you did something right or wrong. It's are you better now than you were then? Because maybe that's, are you able to center more love in this world because of that experience? You know, that no matter what that experience is, if you're able to bring more light and more goodness to the world because of it, then you're changing the world. I I think of it sometimes in the context of my granddaughter, for example. I have three grandchildren now. I I have a four-year-old granddaughter, and she can be temperamental at times. She she can... uh, Uh, break things or write on the wall with a crayon or do other things but they're not sins they're she's she's learning she's experiencing and uh that what she's doing is not wrong right (laughs) there's nothing to forgive because she's not wrong she's not capable of being wrong yeah that's a good way to look at it if we could only look at everybody as a four-year-old and then what they do (laughs) and i wonder sometimes if that's not how the divine looked at us oh i know it is done something so horrible they're looking down and saying oh they learned something they're learning it's okay yeah that's how i felt both in my near-death experience and then years later i had an encounter with jesus and i felt as if i was just a child you know i just felt so loved as if everything i had done was just, he just looked at me as if I was his child, and it was very, very important. I want to read one passage that you wrote, because I do like poetry, and I do like good writing, so um, there's, you know, certain moments that I've marked, and this kind of ties into what we're talking about, but you wrote, every scrap of human experience has value, every shred of every encounter with every soul teaches me something, and every shred and every scrap yields an opportunity to interact with others to hinder their progress or to move them along the path home. Each interaction writes on my soul and changes me. I'm not very good at predicting who will help or how. So that passage really stood out to me and I think it ties into what we're talking about, which is life is magical when you slow down and you look at these encounters and you look at, you know, bathing a homeless man's feet or seeing someone in the ER or reaching out to someone in a moment. Um, When you wrote that, I know this leads up into that story about washing the man's feet, but what, what encounters seemed so very holy later in retrospect and which ones just like completely changed your thinking, these small type of encounters? Well, one of them that was interesting and and life-changing for me was when a friend of mine invited me to come speak to a congregation at the uh, state prison. And uh, we were having a church meeting at the prison, and and he asked me to come be a speaker. And I kept thinking I should talk about repentance. This was some part of what changed my perspective on this whole thing. I kept getting this persistent, strong impression, no, don't talk about repentance, talk about forgiveness. 
And uh, anyway, as the, as the weeks passed, I, I felt a strong presence guiding the message that I was to share. And I went with my friend and I spoke at this prison. And uh, quite unexpectedly, uh, in conjunction with speaking to this group of people, I heard that voice that comes now and then unexpectedly. And it said, I was in prison and he visited me, which is a line from Christ talking about how basically whatever you do to the least of God's children, you're doing to God himself. And it never occurred to me when I accepted that, that assignment to go speak that I was speaking to anything other than a bunch of convicted felons. And it, it, it gave me a jolt in my perspective to remind me that regardless of who they are, they're divine and they're as much divine as I am or more. Um, we get so judgmental in our context on earth. Right, and you, you're right about that, I think, um, through the perspective of Jeff in a Bible study where he was um, talking about a particular verse in the Bible and, and someone who was more pious was saying, well, why does this woman get forgiven for all her sins? And you know, this other person who sinned very little is you know, equally forgiven. I think it ties in to this, that I think I love the story of the prodigal son myself, you know, because I think that most people live life in this way where they're just either rebelling against so much that's happened to them, or they're trying so very hard to seem pious and true and right and, you know, live within society's rigid rules. And God loves them both equally, just as that father loved them both equally. And I think yeah. that's what's so shocking to us is that we're far worse off than we ever imagined and far more loved than we ever could imagine in both cases. In both <laughs> do you find, cases. Yes, do you Absolutely. find that true? I agree wholeheartedly with you. Uh, yeah, the, the parable that Christ was talking about was one woman that had, one person had sinned a lot and the other one had sinned little and, and he forgave them both equally and immediately and he asked which one loved more. And of course, the sinner is the, was the interpretation. And, and the man in Jeff's class was just totally offended by that. How can some, some sinner love him more than me? I'm so righteous. And uh, we should put things in perspective because the point that was being made by the Savior at the time was he explicitly said neither of them could pay the debt. So... It, it doesn't matter how you view yourself. The important thing is you can't get there by yourself. You can't make it on your own. We're all equally dependent upon uh, divine uh, intervention, if you will. And much of the role of, our, of, of why we're here on earth is to divinely help one another. One thing that I like about your story in connection with Jeff, I get asked a lot of questions because I have a verifiable incident outside of form in my near-death experience. And in many ways, I mean, you verify his near-death experience to this great degree. And I know people always look to that. I don't think we need it, but there are so many, you know, I have so many agnostic friends and atheist friends and, and people who are a little bit convinced by moments like this. Have you come in contact with people who are skeptical, but because of your connection with Jeff, that their minds are opened a little? I don't know that for sure. Um, I've had some people say that because I have an MD, somehow my message is more compelling or more credible. And I, I struggle with that because 
they didn't teach me anything about near-death experiences in medical school. Um, um, So, you know, Jeff was uh, about to go on to a TV show, Jeff Olson, and he, he invited me to go with him. And they wanted a physician to verify how sick he was and verify his medical condition. And that was part of what drove what you mentioned earlier in this interview about my opinion about trying to prove whether or not somebody's truly dead. It's totally irrelevant in my opinion. And maybe I feel that way because I'm a physician and I've seen so many people die and some of them come back. Uh, But for me, the only thing that really matters is what did that person learn or experience in the midst of it? Uh, it's the, the medical condition in my opinions are irrelevant. And in fact, I share some experiences in my book where I was perfectly healthy, wide awake, not in, in any kind of a medical crisis. And I had spirits come to me and talk to me uh, in very direct uh, ways uh, without being ill or near death at all. And part of the message I have for people is you don't have to die to have a spiritually transformative experience. And I think that's a message I'm hearing through many different sources and and what I relay to people too. I'm like, that's one of the harder ways to have this kind of spiritual awakening. (laughs) It leaves you with some scars sometimes, Um, you know, like there are easier ways to awaken and and maybe it is um, about just getting that message to people so that more and more people awaken in, in that way or awaken to that. Yeah, you're right and about the things that's gaining prominence now, getting more attention, are what uh, we refer to as shared death experiences. Yes. Where yes. somebody dies, but it's not the person in the medical crisis that has the out of body experience, it's somebody near them. And there's a lot of ex- explanations or rationalizations for why people have near-death experience you know is it an anoxic brain injury is it a temporal lobe seizure you can go through all these things which have been studied none of them really explain it very well but if that's your approach what rationalization or physiological explanation do you use to explain why the person that was perfectly healthy standing at the bedside saw that soul leave their body and ascend to a more glorious place uh, so shared death experiences are getting more discussion lately, uh, and, and they're not fraught with the physiologic uh, shortcomings of some near-death experiences. Yeah, great point. I think I've, uh, I've heard from many hospice workers, you know, profound spiritual experiences that they have almost, you know, with every patient. And that's, yeah. that's amazing, you know, that the veil, as you talk about, both between birth and death seems to be taken away. And that's exactly how I described from the very beginning what happened to me after the near-death experiences. I was like, the veil is just a little bit loosened. <laughs> that's, that's the only way I can describe it. <laughs> Most people after a near-death experience have some heightened spiritual gifts that they didn't have beforehand. Now, that's very common. And, and hospice workers almost always have some very profound experiences to share. I wasn't a hospice worker per se, but I remember on one occasion, a friend of mine who was diagnosed with uh, severe cancer, pancreatic cancer, sent her husband to come find me because she wanted to talk to me about some things. And so he found me and we went to to their home and I spoke with her. And she asked me for a special prayer, which I was happy to offer on her behalf. And she was told at that time, that uh, her loved ones would soon start coming and teaching her and preparing her for her transition. 
And uh, her husband called me the next morning after I left. I, I could feel what was happening. I knew it was going to happen. I wanted to stay, but I knew it wasn't for me, so I had to go. And the next morning, he, he called me and said shortly after I left, she started having visitations from deceased loved ones. And they comforted her through the night, uh, preparing her for what was coming. So I think, as you say, the veil is loosened a bit around people that are approaching uh, death and they get some feelings in advance, sometimes hours or days in advance, preparing them. Yeah, I've had a similar experience when my father died. His parents came to me because I was overworked and I couldn't be with him, you know, every day in hospice. And they said, don't worry, we're already here. You know, we're waiting with him and we're comforting him and talking to him. And I knew, you know, that that was true, you know, that if I had to work, he, his parents were already there in those final days. Yeah. And it, it's a, a beautiful experience. There's, I did mark in your book that section, which was just so lovely about you didn't know whether to call it an out-of-body experience or a vision, but it was, it really struck me. And this was uh, about what was in the chapter patients, but it was about um, feeling washed clean. It almost seemed like you were in this heavenly landscape, like devoid of all material possessions and just in this place of pure love and pure being. And it sounds very much like that heavenly landscape that many near-death experiencers talk about. Is that what it seemed like to you, as if you would just transition into heaven? Yes, I've had a few of those kind of experiences in different contexts, but yes, that's very much how it felt. Uh, you, you felt completely unburdened. Uh, I think I say in the book on one occasion, I don't know whether it's the one you marked or a different place, I talk about how I at once felt that I had nothing, I wanted nothing, and I missed nothing. All I had was uh, some simple clothes that I was wearing at the time I passed through this veil into this glorious place, and there was nothing behind that I missed or wanted. And I kind of realized, you know, uh, how we get our priorities so out of order at times. Yeah, that, that heaven on earth is what I've, heard more and more near-death experiencers like Jeff and Anita Morjani and more people talking about it. It's, it's funny, but just in this recent meditation, I felt this portal open. And I feel like maybe that's the mission of so many of us who are talking about this, is how can we bring more of those moments to people's lives where they're not so fraught with worry and pain and trauma and unforgiveness and, and really just set their hearts free to just be in the bliss of life. And if you had any advice for people though, who are in deep pain and, and listening to this, um, what would your advice be to, to those people? Oh, that's a really tough question. Um, in, in one of my darkest times, one of my most difficult times, I write about it in the book, uh, I, I pled with God to, to deliver me from the experience. And the kind message that came back that felt so brutal at the time was, not yet. That's where the title of the book comes from. Um, there was something more I was supposed to learn. And as, as hard and horrible as it was, I had to accept that. Because I think it was several months or maybe a year later, I thought, well, maybe I'd give it another try. I guess I hadn't learned the lesson of trusting in God uh, enough. And I, I went in prayer again. And, and uh, 
I was shown the pathway out of this horrible place where I was physically, uh, spiritually, emotionally. And uh, I was shown the path. And I was told, yes, you can be free from it. Here's the direction to go. And I was shown, and literally I could see a light at the end of the tunnel. And then that omniscient, uh, all-loving source said to me, but if you want the greater blessing, endure it for now. Because there was something still for me to learn. So not yet is a very poignant thing for me. And when I hear about people in pain, when I know people in pain, my message is simply to try and find what it is that you're supposed to learn from the pain. The pain yes. is what makes us all alike. The pain is what gives us empathy. And for that reason, uh, pain moves us closer to our divine potential. Yes. I don't know why it's that way, but I do know it's that way. That's beautifully said, and it's so hard in the moment because I, I've recently completed writing my book, and I look back, and I'm like, there was a 10-year period where I was trying to get over a certain trauma, and that's a long time. Not like every day was difficult, but you know, that's a long time to walk through a particular trauma, and so I look at other people who are struggling with similar traumas, and I'm like, how can I get them to move through it quicker and learn the lesson quicker? And the lesson usually is empathy. I mean, the greatest gift that I've taken through every bit of sorrow or every trauma that I've lived through is that I can connect with others who have been through that as well and help them heal quicker as if we're all one family, you know, and maybe even, you know, work at it on a larger sociological level, you know, of, of shedding more light on something to bring healing to it as well. And, and that's, you don't see it in the moment. You just see like, oh, this is so painful. How am I going to walk through it? And you want to avoid it. But I've learned that going into the center of it and feeling it is always better. You know, that it's, it's generally better to accept it and learn from it, as you said. And that's, that's powerful. Yeah, my wife uh, drew a powerful, beautiful analogy for me once that had to do with childbirth. And he said that in, in the midst of childbirth, you had this realization, there's no way around it, there's no other way, you can only go through it to get to the other side. And that's the way so many of our tests and trials and challenges are. And I remember about 10 years after one of my really horrible experiences, I was able to sit with a friend whose father had just passed away unexpectedly. And we talked about things and I shared with him some insights and some thoughts I'd had and some experiences and they were very helpful for him. And I remember driving home that night and for the first time in 10 years, I remember being grateful for the pain that I'd experienced because it enabled me to help this person. And it was the first time I'd been grateful for that pain. Right. And sometimes I've found that my pain is minuscule in comparison to the person who I'm helping, but my pain was enough to get me to open to what they were going through. You know, my pain was in a loss of, you know, whatever, in a certain situation. I've had students who've lost their entire families in drive-by shootings, and they're just left alone in this world. You know, I've had so many circumstances where people have endured a loss and a pain and a trauma that, you know, far outreaches what I endured, but I still had that splinter of, of understanding because of what I endured. Well, I talk about this in the book somewhat. You have to be very careful not to compare circumstances. Yeah. <laughs> not to compare the depth of our pain to somebody else's. Rather, we have to realize that circumstances are made up of two things. 
circumstances, first circumstances, secondly, the feelings. And the feelings are what craft our souls and make us different and change who we are. And we see another person's circumstances and we judge their experience by their circumstances rather than by the way their soul has changed or what they've learned from it. And one of the keys to empathy is to realize that I can have that person's feelings or that person's pain, even though my circumstances are different. And I can empathize with them because what really matters is the feelings that we've both been through make us alike. Yes, yes, that's a good point. And the what I've found is when I've suffered, like my first marriage was abusive. And when I left that very quickly, I stopped judging other women that were in abusive relationships because I was like, okay, well, yeah, people with graduate degrees in good parts of town, you know, can, can still end up in these situations. It's not limited to, you know, someone who doesn't have an education or, you know, like whatever my judgment might have been about that circumstance. And that, um, that made me more open to the masses of students who at community college level who came into my classroom so that we could look at this on a broader scale when it happened. And so I'm sure, and I think you even mentioned a, a woman in the book who left, a, that you helped, who left an abusive relationship. Yes, uh, I, I've seen a lot of that. And in fact, I've actually spoken I spoke to a group of medical providers about uh, domestic violence and abusive uh, situations. And so I am kind of knowledgeable about that a bit. It cuts across every socioeconomic, uh, religious, uh, gender, uh, race, ethnicity, cuts across all boundaries. There's only one thing, this is a bit off topic, but there's only one thing that's uh, a reliable predictor of domestic violence. Uh, women who grow up being abused are much more likely to marry someone who will abuse them. And men who grow up being abused are much more likely to cause to, to abuse others. So it's one of these things you have to stop it before it starts. You have to stop it a generation ahead of the uh, people that you're trying to help. Yes. It's already so deeply ingrained by the time they're grown. Yes. We understand the same thing. Like I have my students write about that topic um, frequently because I, I want them to know the research, to know if they are from abusive homes, that they're more likely to miss the warning signals or just be energetically drawn to someone who is going to abuse them in some way right. or, or to just have that trigger. And that I, one of my big hopes to, is later to work with community college students to do deeper spiritual work to start releasing that before they get into relationships because I think that would be so helpful. That's the what needs to happen, I think. Yeah, and, and I said it was off topic, but in a way it's really not off topic. It's really right on topic in a way when you're talking about somebody's divinity and their divine potential. Um, one of the things that I've found is that so much dysfunctional human behavior, whether it be addiction or abuse or any number of other things, people are trying to manage their pain, that pain that we talked about earlier. They're trying to find a way to get around the pain or to avoid it or to end it or to placate it in some way. And, and whether they choose uh, drugs or workaholics or domestic violence, uh, so many people are trying to manage their pain. And the way to manage it is to, as you say, you know, drill into it, go into it head on, understand it, and find your spiritual, your divine center 
that gives you a context for why it's there and what comes from it. Good points. And I, yeah, so I think one thing I've learned too is to be very gentle around college students who are going through breakups, um, you know, to really look at their hearts and to allow them to process it and to give them a safe space to talk about it because people, if they have a lifetime of pain, then they are more likely to just act out, whether it's self-harm or harming others, um, because they just don't know how to contain all that pain or process it. And so I think that's part of the work, too, is, is that empathy can actually help someone calm down in some moment. It can be a stranger. It can be you know, a professor, a, you know, a doctor. It can be anyone who just reaches out in that moment and gives a little thread of peace to that person. But. Yeah, and, and sometimes we us underestimate the value of listening and we think it's all about what we say, uh, but often it's not about what we say, it's about what we hear and what we listen to and what we acknowledge without saying more. Yeah. Having a safe space, as you say, is so critical in these things, being the safe place for somebody to come to, to talk to. Yeah. And that's what I found about my spiritual journey in a lot of ways, and why I try to help other people with their spiritual journey it, it's about being a safe place for them to talk. Um, somebody very close to me that read my book came back to me and said, you know, I now realize that I've had a lot of spiritual experiences and I didn't realize they were spiritual before I read your book. Oh, that's wonderful. That is such a gift to, to give to someone. And I think that your book definitely can do that. And then I think you even have a line in here about if you want a safe space, be the safe space. <laughs> and yeah. That, yeah. that. <laughs> and what did you That's mean by what that? Jeff Olson referred to me. He, he said that I was his safe spot, you know, a safe place to share and stuff. And, and uh, it, it led to a, a lasting, beautiful friendship that uh, continues today. We're going to be speaking together at the International Association of Near-Death Studies meetings in Bellevue, Washington. And I think it's the first couple of days of September. Yeah. I'm going to be there too. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, uh, we're, we're uh, doing a thing together with Raymond Moody, uh, the physician who started uh, the early research on near-death studies and wrote some of the really seminal stuff about near-death studies. So tell me uh, a little bit more about that. Um, I don't know a lot about it yet. But <laughs> I, uh, he's put together some kind of a forum, and uh, I don't think that event is, and I think it's not until December. It, it's on my website, jeffodriscoll.com. Uh, it has a specific uh, date. And I think it's going to be a uh, video conference with him. Uh, but I don't know all the details yet. I don't know if all the details have actually been settled yet. Awesome, though. That's amazing. I, I know that your story and Jeff's story, along with someone like Raymond Moody, that, that will definitely get a lot of views and will definitely um, pique people's interest. But I'm so happy that you'll be speaking at my summit um, after Jeff on um, oh, yes. June 16th as well. So looking forward to that. Yeah, so thank you so much. I guess this is a good place to end, um, but I've enjoyed it and I look forward to hearing more from you and good luck with uh, your travels and with the book and all the people who you will touch and meet because of this book. Well, thank you very much for reading it, for sharing your thoughts and for this interview. It's, it's been a real pleasure. <laughs> thank you. And may everyone watching this be blessed and please look at the links below for this book and for the summit and for other information, but have a great day.